0: Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is a very special episode. It's going to be our first interview, and I'd like to introduce more voices. Um, bring you more professionals who are in the field or related to audiology in some way, and also to hear some of your stories like we did in the last All About You episode. It's really important for me that your voice is heard, for you to know that what you're going through is helpful to other people, what they're going through, and that in this way we can all connect and help each other. So, I have a few things to tell you before we jump into the interview. Number one is that if you haven't gotten already or heard about the free checklist that I created for you guys, it's a morning routine and evening routine checklist for caring for a hearing aid. It's available for free. All you have to do is go to the podcast show notes or check on my Instagram at audiology podcast or go to allaboutaudiology.com. Um, Any of the way that you would reach me, you can get to this PDF. It has information about caring for hearing aids and how to clean the hearing aids. And also, I made it that if you put it into a plastic sleeve or have it laminated, you can use a dry erase marker to check off what you've done and have that hanging near the bed or, or in the bathroom, wherever you get ready in the morning with the hearing aids. So right before we jump into the interview with Dr. Hadassah Kupfer, a private practice audiologist in the Mill Basin neighborhood of Brooklyn in New York, Dr. Kupfer and I went to school together. She was a few years ahead of me in school. I knew her when I was doing my undergraduate degree at Brooklyn College, and we both attended the CUNY Graduate Center in New York for the audiology doctoral program. We had an excellent conversation that I'm going to play for you now all about ear infections, tubes, and the reason I reached out to my friend and colleague was because I know that she did a research capstone, kind of like a dissertation in the doctoral program on this topic of childhood ear infections and fluid in the ears and has a lot of information and guidance for parents of young children dealing with this issue. Dr. Kupfer has a patient first approach and her passion for audiology and for her patients comes through in our interview We'll have Dr. Hadassah Kupfer's information and links in the show notes and in the post at allaboutaudiology.com. And if you want to visit her website, it's www.drkupfer.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-K-U-P-F-E-R.com. And so we're going to jump right in and I'm just going to make an apology. The sound quality is good and I wish it could be better. It's my first time doing an online interview like this. And even though it can be better and I'm going to improve as I make more online interviews, I really didn't wanna miss out on this amazing interview and be able to share all of the information that she shared with us. And so without further ado, we're gonna jump right in. Let's welcome Dr. Kupfer. Dr. Cuffer, welcome to the All About Audiology podcast. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey towards becoming an audiologist and a private practice owner. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and hello from Brooklyn, New York, uh, your
1: hometown. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, sure, so I'm an audiologist now. My practice focuses on adults and older adults mostly, but we also see children, and a lot of my training involved um, seeing children, so I have a fond place in my heart for this. I myself am a mother of three young children, so you know I think a lot about pediatric topics. As an audiologist, uh, my journey here came from, uh, my parents are both doctors, so I always knew I wanted to do something in healthcare, and then looking into the different specialties, I came across audiology, and it was just really fascinating between the aspects of communication and psychology and the biology of the human ear and how it all came together. So that's what got me started down this path.
0: I think that we have that in common, this idea that there's like a magic in audiology that you write that sure. about. Um, yes. it's like all the intersection is it is it neuroscience we're like talking about yeah. music and art and how do we pick up right. on the cues of someone's speech like it all comes together it's really fun yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and I think also that's one of the reasons this podcast has such a wide range of listeners because audiology itself can ha- cover so many different topics so today's topic is all about ear infections fluid in the ears And this thing about the ear tubes, they call them grommets. What is all of this about? And I wanted to have you on here because I know you've done a lot of research and have experience with this. So you are our expert today. Thank you so much. Thank you. So
1: we'll try to cover a little bit of this. Um, Basically, ear infections, right? As a mother, as a parent, we've all heard about this. We go to the doctor. The doctor looks inside the child's ear And they'll either say, oh, ear infection, here's some medication, or they'll say fluid and then kind of not explain much more than that. And um, sometimes, you know, they'll walk out with a referral to an ENT or to an audiologist, but the parents aren't really explained much in the crosshairs. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I actually did my, my capstone, which is kind of like a dissertation on this topic, because audiologists often end up interacting with parents in this situation. And I discovered that parents are really very poorly informed about what's going on and what their options are. And I wanted to educate myself properly um, on the actual evidence and the science and, you know, just letting people know about, what was actually happening to their child and what the proper thing was to do and what their options are. Now, what's tricky is that in, even in the literature, in the evidence, there isn't so much agreement about some things, which is why there's this confusion. It's not as straightforward as, you know, a broken leg, you know, we treat it this way. No, it's, it's much more murky than that. And that's why it's, of course, important to have a good team between, you know, your pediatrician and your audiologist, if any, and the ENT. So let's step back and talk about something called otitis media. This refers to an inflammation of the middle ear. The middle ear is something that's inside the body, okay? It's behind the eardrum. So when you stick your finger into your ear, your finger will only get so far, but, and you'll never touch your eardrum, but this is an area that's inside the body, okay? So that's one big misunderstanding that parents have. When they think about infections and fluid, they think it has something to do with their kids going in the bathtub or in the pool, and that's typically not. It typically has no relationship to this, because this is something that's inside the body, and it comes from something that's inside the body, and it needs to be treated as something from inside the body. So there's this general concept that this area behind the eardrum, called the middle ear, can get inflamed. Sometimes it gets inflamed, and an infection sets in. When there is an infection, antibiotics are usually what the doctor will recommend to clear up the infection. Sometimes though, that area just becomes inflamed and then there's a fluid that builds up, okay? Just like our nose can get congested, we can get a little phlegmy, the ear can also get congested in its own way and there can be fluid that builds up. Just to back up a little bit, why is all of this happening? Why is it only happening to kids? Why is it happening to my child, etc.? Okay, most of the scientists out there agree that the origin of these problems starts with this area called the eustachian tube. Okay, this is a, a tube. It's some sort of muscle that connects this part of the ear, the middle ear, to the back of the throat and to the nose. And in children, this area is not as developed as it is for adults. Now, usually, the eustachian tube has a well-defined opening and closing mechanism okay and when it's closed everything that's in the ear stays in the ear everything that's in the back of the throat stays in the throat its job is actually to open in certain times to kind of equalize the pressure in the middle ear let out pressure let out fluid in the back of the throat and to drain and at other times its job is to close and keep it closed and keep it protected and in children this is not so defined it's at a different angle and things can easily pass between the back of the throat and the ear so what we often see is that when a child gets a cold escalates into some sort of ear infection or fluid in the ears because this tube at the back of the throat is enabling that cold to go from you know the, the nose and the throat into the ear and then you know the, the symptoms go on
0: would you say that's a little bit similar to what happens with reflux something's yes. supposed to stay where it is but it like backs up back and then it's absolutely. In the wrong place. absolutely yeah and
1: actually um, there have been studies actually looking at the contents of some middle ear fluid and they've seen, you know, contents of reflux in that. So it can back up into the middle ear space as well.
0: That cannot be comfortable. Wow. <laughs> no,
1: no, <not> at all. <laughs> yeah. So, um, A lot of the treatments that are involved for children have to do with dealing with the symptoms of the fact that for the time being, during childhood, a child's eustachian tube is causing secretions to go back and forth. Now most children do grow out of this condition by around age seven, okay? So the goal of a lot of these treatments are just to get the child by during this childhood period. You know whether it's discomfort whether it's affecting their behavior or their speech it's just to get them by this critical period but in general most children just do grow out of it in general there's a very favorable natural outcome for fluid and ear infections just resolving on their own the question is though do we have time to wait and that's where your doctor your pediatrician together with your audiologist and your ENT help piece that all together to see based on you, based on how long you've been waiting already, based on your other medical history, does this look like something that will naturally clear up on its own? And if so, there's one way of handling it, or does it look like this is really here to stay and waiting will not really do you much good, in which case there's no need to wait any longer. Let's just, you know, take care of it right away.
0: Wonderful. Okay, so that was a very good overview of what's going on, why this happens. Um, So how common is it in kids?
1: By the age of three, 80% of children have had one ear infection.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So ear infections, like we said, that's, you know, an actual infection. Very, very common, especially, you know, between the ages of six months and 24 months between the ages of three and seven. Um, also, very, very common, I don't have the specific percentage offhand off the top of my head, but I will say this accounts for uh, a major cause of childhood hearing loss. Childhood hearing loss, which in this case is of course temporary because it's just being caused by this blockage of fluid, which means that when sound goes into the ear, it's getting reduced in volume as it travels through the fluid, and then the child is just hearing everything as if they're underwater, and then everything just sounds very muffled. Um, um, so in this age group it's pretty common. They say it at any one point um, in a classroom during this age group there's about 15% of the class that has some sort of hearing loss related to fluid. So it is it is pretty common and the challenge is that it's not symptomatic the way that an ear infection is. An ear infection, the child will have fever, they'll be complaining, my ear hurts, they're tugging on their ear. Um, with fluid in the ears, it's not an infection. So it's not like the doctor will say right away, you know, take some medicine, they'll just say, you know, they'll they'll kind of just leave it very vague and just say, Oh, it's fluid without really saying much more. But even though there are no acute symptoms of it, there are other issues that are a lot more subtle that will come up. So for example, a child may not be speaking so well, or they may not, they may not be speaking at all, because they're just hearing everything muffled. And then therefore, they're not Being exposed to sounds around them in order to learn how to say those sounds, or they might be um, speaking unclearly because the way that they hear sounds is, you know, distorted by the fluid, they're not hearing clearly, and therefore they're imitating those sounds. Um, Or they might have behavior issues, they might be fussy or just, you know, not really paying attention in school. When you call their name, they're not really answering you. Um, all those things which are products of the hearing loss that the fluid is causing so there's no medical symptoms that would be caught by a doctor but the thing is that as parents these are things that we can catch on to and bring to our doctor's attention to, to be able to investigate further
0: yeah and also the idea that it's fluctuating and yes. so you could be like this for one week and then you see your doctor in the off week so it's fine but then the week after that it's back and yeah. Goes up and down absolutely. like that.
1: absolutely. And we, we see that very, very often. So one thing I would say is to just pay attention to when your children have colds or stuffiness or just heavy breathing. And and that's usually when you know you'll see these symptoms popping up more. And that's when you want to just keep an eye. You'll probably notice it more then, but just see if it, it mm-hmm. ends up lingering or if it, you know, passes within a week or two
0: okay so if someone has this what should they do if their doctor is just kind of waving it off and saying let's see what happens but maybe they're more worried and they want to know how do we fix this is there a way to avoid it
1: yeah okay yeah great question so like i said the good news is that um there's a very favorable natural history so even if somebody doesn't do anything in most cases this will go away on its own the question is just is the child going to have delays in the meantime based on the fact that, you know, for a time being, even, you know, three or six months in a child's lifespan, that that's really a significant amount of time for them to not be hearing well, not engaged, not not being exposed to language. Um, and you don't want to set up your child like that. You know, when, when a child is so young, this is a very critical period, as they say, for, for, you know, being exposed to everything around them. So first things first, if it is ear infections that your child has, you know, A few ear infections here and there, very common. Just listen to the doctor, take the antibiotics as needed, and and that's typically all that's needed. If somebody has more than three ear infections in the span of six months, or if they have four ear infections over the course of a year, four or more, I should say, if their doctor hasn't recommended that they see an ENT, they should probably just try to get an ENT consultation on their own, just as, you know, just just to check to to be sure, because when children are having a lot of ear infections and they're on antibiotics repeatedly, um, this isn't good for a child's um, antibiotic resistance. Um, It's not good for their appetite um just children who are Take a lot of medicine like that. Just are some can be very fussy. And if there's a way to, to treat this medically, it may be worth looking into. The other thing is with the fluid. Okay, if the doctor sees the fluid in the ear, okay, one time, all right. The next time you're back there again, if that keeps on going on, you may want to ask him. Do you think it's time for us to see an ENT or see an audiologist? The cases of fluid that go away on its own, as I mentioned before, most of the time it does go away. On its own. Usually, it will have gone away within three months. Okay. If it's lasting beyond three months and the fluid is still there, chances are it needs some more help, okay? And especially if the child is experiencing hearing loss in both of the ears, and now again, how do you know that there's hearing loss? A person will go to an audiologist at that point to see, okay, there's fluid, now how much is, how much hearing loss is this fluid creating? Is it just a little bit of a blockage? Is it a lot of a blockage? Is the fluid very thin? Or is the fluid very thick, like glue? Now, if it's lasting, you know, more than three months, and the hearing loss is in both of the ears, usually this is not good for a child's development, especially especially if the child is at higher risk for either language delay. Like if you're already seeing that they're delayed, or if there's other medical um, conditions that are you know, putting them at risk for delay, there's no time to waste. You know, right away, just go see the ENT. They'll probably recommend tubes. It's not an actual tube coming out of the ear the way I used to think it was, you know, before I I went to school and learned better. It's actually just a little cut that they make in the eardrum, deep in the ear. Nobody's able to see it. And then they put in a tiny little, it's almost like a little straw, tiny little straw through the eardrum so that instead of the fluid building up behind the eardrum and causing pain or hearing loss or whatever... It can drain through that tube. So the station tube that's in the body, we know it's immature, we know maybe it's you know not opening and closing the way it should be. But at least this tube we know is open. It's a little plastic thing. It's letting the fluid drain out through the ear canal, actually. So it's, you know, sidestepping the natural way that fluid would normally drain. This procedure is done extremely common. It's one of the most common uh, surgeries that children have. You know, the the recovery time is very brief. Um, It doesn't require uh, general anesthesia in most cases, which is why parents are afraid of it sometimes. But it is extremely common and very quick.
0: It does or it does not?
1: Which does. Said it, is, it does. It does. Yes, it does. Um, in cases where A child um, can't tolerate general anesthesia. I've heard of doctors doing it without. You know, for example, Mm -hmm. let's say children with Down syndrome. Sometimes it's you know it's hard to to put them under. They're not sure. Or children with heart conditions. They would basically just you know strap the child down. Um, And it's a little scary in the moment. But again, it's such a quick thing that they are able to do it. You know, with the child awake, and they would just put like local anesthesia on the eardrum. When are the times that it's possible, theoretically, to wait on a surgery like this? First of all, if the hearing loss is only affecting one ear, then the child has another good ear, I guess, to, to rely on. If there's no other academic concerns or speech concerns, if the parent is monitoring it very closely, um, then sometimes, you know, we would wait, you know, up to six months. In those cases, we will, we would wait, um, you know, up to six months and and then see, you know, if if uh, the child is growing out of it. And the whole idea is we're just trying to allow the time to pass with the least consequences for the child, knowing that the child will eventually grow out of it. The tubes, by the way, do naturally just come out of the ear as the, as the eardrum heals in most cases. So the tubes usually stay in for about six to nine months and then the eardrum heals. And then by then hopefully they've, they've bought themselves some time and then hopefully at that point they're a little bit older and their eustachian tube is just holding up better naturally Um, for this reason doctors will usually do this procedure closer to the winter which is when more children get cold and more children suffer from ear infections of fluid and less likely to do it in the spring when children are a little bit better because the whole idea is we need them to be in place for for the winter time for those those difficult months so now as far as just who's at a higher risk we definitely see this in the younger children we definitely see family patterns so if there's a family history if the mother had an issue with fluid and 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 tubes then we're suspecting it more in the children that they're not going to grow out of it that they may need some some assistance to take care of it. Um, we see it with children who drink their bottles lying down this is not good because helping those secretions go the, the back of the nose and the throat all the bacteria that kind of usually stays there bringing it into the back of the ear and causing things to grow in there so that's not a good idea that's something that parents should you know can often control and aware and of, um, we see ear infections more often in smoking homes, so you know, try to, to be aware of that, just another benefit of, of not smoking. And there's also actually a protective effect of breastfeeding um, for children on ear infections, a number of ear infections, and by the way, this holds true whether or not they drink the breast milk from the breast or from a bottle, but the, the actual breast milk has, has a protective effect. There was actually a study on children who are born with cleft palate. Cleft palate is where part of their palate on the inside is is missing. They can't latch for normal breastfeeding. And they were fed through like a special contraption with the breast milk. And they still notice the same protective effect against ear infections as the children who drink regularly from bottles or from the breast. Yeah. So I thought that was fascinating. Wow.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that's a long list. That's yeah. Kind of yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: What can people do? Um, if they want to avoid it in addition to everything you just mentioned but let's say they they have already fluid and they don't want to do the surgery and they want to can they change their diet or is there other like is there exercises what can they do
1: okay yeah so this is this is a hot topic because a lot of people do want to avoid surgery um so again it's always very important to keep the timeline um in mind you know if this is something that's going on for more than three or six months, chances are, it's not going to go away on its own. And, and you probably will need surgical or medical intervention there. Things to keep in mind, other than, you know, just the other things, the risk factors. And by the way, another risk factor is having other children in the home because, you know, they're around other colds and, you know, being in a playgroup also, you know, getting colds more. That being said, there is something called an auto inflation device. It's called the ear popper basically is trying to strengthen the eustachian tube which is you know the root cause of all of these you know uh, childhood ear problems it is forcing air up through the nose, to the back, through the throat, and into the ear. So forcing the estation tube to open up and to strengthen. And as it opens up, it drains out some of the fluid. So depending on what the reason is that the estation tube is not able to open and close, sometimes this device can help. This is natural. It's not an expensive device. It's 120 $150. You can buy it on Amazon. I know I did for my son. Um, but I'll tell you a story. Recently, uh, my son, who's three years old, um, I noticed he was speaking loudly, his speech was not clear. And he was having a lot of cold, just always very stuffy. And finally, you know, we, we did see the ENT to see what was going on. He had uh, like a mild to moderate hearing loss, which means everything, you know, that we hear normally, he was kind of hearing like a whisper or barely hearing. I had been doing the ear popper with him hoping that, you know, we can we can avoid surgery if possible. Not that I'm against it. But you know, I just, you know, if we can avoid it, why not? Um, And then it turned out when the ENT examined him, the root cause of his issue was in his adenoid. He had a very inflamed adenoid and he needed antibiotics for the adenoid. And doing this ear popper alone would have never helped with that because the adenoid is totally separate from the station tube and that is what needed to be treated. So my takeaway from this is that even if you want to take a natural uh, approach to things or, or you don't want to do surgery, at least have the Consultation just to see what's going on, just to see if you're on the right track, because you know it's it's easy to get misguided with these things, you know. And and the way that the ENT knew this was because he did um, a nasal endoscopy. He took a little camera, snaked it down his nose, and he actually saw where where the origin, you know, where it was coming from. So that that was pretty powerful to me.
0: Yeah, and I think also some children have hearing loss that's permanent, that's sensory neural hearing loss, and that may have developed in the first three years of life. And you say, oh, it might just be the fluid. It might just be this. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with that. So. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is so true, Dr. Saberstein. And we've seen cases like that, that um, they thought it was something that the child would, would grow out of and, you know, they didn't really take it seriously at first, didn't have it formally evaluated and they missed a critical period. So, so yes, a hearing test can definitely show which part of the ear the, the trouble is coming from, whether it's coming from the middle ear, which usually is treatable. Or if it's coming from the inner ear, the cochlea, that's something that is is permanent and needs to be taken very seriously. Um, the hearing test can distinguish between the two of those things. And the other thing is that oftentimes a child will have a lot of earwax in their ears. On its own, there's nothing wrong with it. However, a lot of pediatricians, unfortunately, they'll look in the ear. There's a lot of earwax. They don't get a good view of, of what's happening in the eardrum and beyond. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll just let the child out the door without really saying fluid, ear infection, and there's a lot of misdiagnosis that's around. So if you have a hunch that something is going on, um, just recognize, I, I'm not distrusting your doctor, but just recognize that it is very easy to miss and, and there's a lot of misinformation and, and um, lack of agreement, even among medical guidelines of what the correct thing is to do. So it's worth asking, it's worth getting a second opinion, and it's always worth going to a specialist because after all, that, that is the one and only thing that they look at, so they're, they're really good at getting to the root of the issue.
0: Excellent, we have so much information. I've heard people ask about uh, what if I take my child off of dairy and do a dairy-free diet, or what if I take them to a chiropractor that will give them an alignment yeah. to, to you know, all these other options. Have you heard of anyone using them and have they, are they successful? So uh,
1: unfortunately, the evidence, would, and I'm talking medical evidence that's reviewed by, by experts, by, by people with medical degrees, Um, Reviewed by peers, not just something that can go in a a magazine and just, you know, get looked over by the editor. Things that are rigorously reviewed for their true uh, evidence and efficacy in experiments. None of this supports, um, you know, the chiropractic remedies, the, um, the, the diets. Usually, what's happening is it's the natural course of the ear just playing out. And whether or not you did that, the ear would have healed on its own. I I, I hate to say it because I know people people get very invested in these things, but um, you know, again, think about that. You know, the fact that most children do clear up within three months or even six months, and you're doing all these things. Chances are, it would have cleared up on its own. Um, I'm not a fan of subjecting a child to to a chiropractor. Um, The the diets. I mean, again. If the reason why a child is congested is because they anyways had an allergy, then yes, this plays into the whole concept that inflammation and swelling of the eustachian tube is not allowing things to drain properly, and therefore it's backing up. So, if you if you're genuinely concerned about that, then have his allergies checked. And this is something that an ENT will often do. ENTs and allergists often work together for this reason because you know things get that get swollen in the nose and the throat. You know often affects the ear. Um, they will often do an allergy test, and if the child truly has an allergy, then they will make recommendations and chances are it will improve. Um, but just to randomly take your child off of food groups, that, that is not not advisable. I, I don't think that that should be done without specific physician guidance.
0: I agree. Yeah, I think, I think what you're saying about really monitoring and being on top of the progression of it. So we would see patients that come in and then come back eight months later. You know, what happened in the last eight months? No idea. We haven't had another hearing test. We haven't had another tympanogram you know, the, the status of the eardrum movement, right. and, and we don't know. So it, even if right. you're w- taking this wait-and-see approach, which can right. resolve on its own, mm-hmm. at least come back to your follow-up yeah. in six, yeah. weeks, yeah, six weeks, come yep. back again. Six
1: weeks, yep, exactly, exactly. That, that is usually the timeline that we recommend. Anytime we see something unusual about um, this part of the ear, something that could be coming and going and getting better and getting worse, we usually recommend coming back within four to six weeks just to get an idea of where it's heading. Maybe it's getting better, maybe it's getting worse. Either way, we want to know just to guide you further. It doesn't automatically mean that your child needs surgery. Um, in fact, by doing these things, you can actually probably prevent them from getting surgery because you know, as we see it getting better, we know what to do. As we see it getting worse, we know what to do. So monitoring is very key here.
0: Yeah, and you, you spoke a lot, you mentioned about the ramifications for speech development but it could also have ramifications medically where if there's untreated ear infections over and over and over again that can affect the middle ear and then make mm-hmm. something that's temporary make it into something that's more permanent which is
1: yes <laughs> yeah
0: yeah no it's truly <laughs> really unfortunate because at that point it is you know kind of preventable sure for sure definitely so to wrap up i would like to ask you you have all of our parents listening here today what is one thing you would tell them about their child, whether or not they have a hearing loss, whether or not they've gone through the, the ear infections, their recommended tubes or not, but everyone who's listening to this um, has children or has children in their life, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, hearing is one of those things that can be uh, a silent disability and children don't often speak up and tell you, mommy, I'm not hearing so well. So I would say as parents, it's our job to keep an eye on, on our kids and, and look out for those signs that something is not going right so that you can step in earlier on when it's usually either preventable, if it's something temporary or, um, you know, to, to take action before, you know, longer term consequences come in. Um, the ears people don't realize plays such a huge role on, um, child development, their learning, their ability to read, their ability to make inferences, their ability for their personality to develop because when we hear we're really, we're interacting with the world around us. Um, and it's keeping the brain stimulated. So, and mean by the way, this is something that, um, can be said for children and it can be said for adults often. Okay. Sometimes it's not the, the, the person themselves who's experiencing it that can speak up and say what's happening because they don't know what they're missing. You know, it it happened. These changes happen slowly and they, they don't even realize it's the people around them that will notice, Hey, something is not right. Hey, they're asking for me to repeat. Hey, I have to speak louder in order for them to, to hear me. Hey, they're acting out in class. You know, they, they're, They're not really catching what I'm telling them. I'm giving them a few instructions. They're only catching the first one. They're more tired than usual at the end of the day, possibly because they're straining all day long to listen. They're acting out because they're, you know, it's too difficult for them to strain and listen. Um,
0: And socially, socially being missing jokes and not not catching what's going on
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and of course, the, the speech is super important. That's usually the reason why parents get drawn into this. That's the thing that they notice that their child um, is speech delayed and then they don't know what's going on. And the thing is that if we can prevent your child from being delayed or limit their delays by you know recognizing the issue right away, getting the proper treatment, getting their their therapy started, obviously to treat you know someone who's younger, Treating somebody at age two or three is very different than treating a child at age five or six. You know, that, that is a, a major, major difference in a young child's lifespan, and the outcomes are very different, you know. So, so definitely, um, when you notice something, it can't hurt to mention it to your doctor. And just to see, it doesn't automatically mean that they're going to get surgery. Um, just, just to see where your child falls, realizing that this is a very common, normal thing. Like I said, my son had it too. You know, I, I, if, if anyone should be able to to prevent these things, um, I, w- I would have thought it would have been me. My son got it anyway. It happens. It happens, and it's not your fault. It's usually not something you can prevent from happening, even though those mild things you can sway it a little bit back and forth. But really, it's just it's out of your control. It happens. And just if you take care of it properly, your child will be just fine.
0: Thank you so much. I think yeah. we all feel a little bit better and more, <laughs> I uh, hope so. more
1: informed. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you.
0: Thanks for coming on the show. So there you have our first all about audiology interview with my friend and colleague, Dr. Hadassah Kupfer. I hope that you were able to gain a lot of insight about fluid in the ears of the tube surgery and the difference between ear infections and fluid accumulation. I really appreciate her insightful and concise way of explaining things and so now I'm going to ask you what did you think of our episode what did you think of the interview format and if you can share with us your experience with tube surgery with ear infections with fluid in the ears I'd really really like to hear about you and get more of your voices on the show you can record a quick voice memo and email it to me through the contact form on my website or through Instagram or through Facebook all about audiology Also, don't forget, if you'd like to download that free PDF checklist, you can get that on the website as well. In the next full episode, I have another exciting interview lined up with an amazing speech-language pathologist, and we're going to be talking about the deaf community, American Sign Language, and language deprivation that unfortunately is all too common in the deaf and hard of hearing population. It's a topic that I'm very passionate about, and I'm really looking forward to that interview. I can't wait to hear your comments and your voice memos, and I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you listening and supporting the podcast. I'm Dr. Lila Saperstein, and this is the All About Audiology podcast.